Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. This is Bill Brewster. Welcome to Value After Hours. Jake, you want to tell us your topic for the week? Hey, value nerds. My topic today is Dan Rasmussen's The Way the World Should Work. Toby, what are you going to be talking about this week? I'll be talking about the legendary Tweety Brown and their semi-annual report, which just came out September 2019. And I'll be talking about a, a battle of longs and shorts in restoration hardware and what I think is a very interesting story. Right after this. this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. I just wanted to say something generally about Cliffs um, and in the podcast format generally, right? We're, we're chatting, and I think that there may be some things that come out that are not precise, and for that I apologize. I'll always try to be accurate. Uh, and then hopefully we'll have some cleanup items in the show notes if anything happens. So that that would be my only comment. So, like, for instance, saying the wrong target on Cliffs is not the ideal way to have a discussion about it. Did it change its name? It was Cl- it was Cleveland Cliffs, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, Cliffs, it was Cliffs Natural Resources. Resources. And then Cleveland Cliffs. I don't even so. know how to change its name, but I know that ticker CLF Cleveland. What else do you need to know? That's right. Well, look, at the end of the day... I think the story is more complicated and they're using what he said was undervalued shares to make an acquisition. And I still think that it's an example of a, a tough business throwing up tough decisions. So I stand by the conversation, but apologize for any inaccuracies. I know we have some financial analysts listening to this and I'm sure they were pulling their hair out. Some some random resource investor and in saying, what are you talking about? I think you flatter yourself that anybody besides us is listening to it. <laughs> That's fair. Well, I was pulling my own hair out. <laughs> so, what, what's the what's the who, who's buying the curate debt? Because let's just recap that. What was the curate story? Well, I've been on this thing for a while about who is taking the credit risk and the duration for a lot of this paper that's being issued corporately, and I think that what I I think the answer has to be people that are speculating on interest rates and credit spreads, because if you have long duration paper, the way the math can work is if you're right on the rates and the spreads compress a little, you can make a ton of money on the nominal value of your bonds increasing, right? Like if you look at the return on treasuries over the past year, especially the long dated ones, it was really impressive. But that's not a cash flow buyer. I saw somebody, I, I wish I could remember who said this because it was such a great line. Somebody said something like, People are now buying stocks for the yield and bonds for the capital appreciation. Yeah. Was that Gunlock? Was it Gunlock? It was a great line anyway. I'll, I'll give that it to him. That was a depressing interview. I, I, had to, I almost had to take a volume or something after listening to Gunlock talk for 40 minutes. But what about the 40%, the 40% prediction for, for a decline next year? It's a, it's a well-hedged uh, prediction, isn't it? That's the non-prediction prediction. That's right. The prediction you have when you're not having a prediction, it just sounds good. And then whatever happens, it doesn't, you, you can never get called on it. You just you get know, to float it out there in the ether and not take any, not take any heat for it. 
Well, yeah, and then when you're right, you just say, see, I told you, and then when you're wrong, like you said, you just hedge it. But uh, I did I did find what he was saying very interesting, but it was not the most uplifting conversation that I've ever heard in my life. What, what made you so depressed? Well, I think he's right on a lot of things. But what's what, different what do you think between... about all the, all the fourth turning talk? How do you feel about that stuff? That's very zero hedge. Yeah, yeah it is a little. Well, we all have... We all have kids, and I, you know, I imagine nobody wants to live through actual real, you know, like storm the Bastille type of turmoil, right? But do you think that that's what what Gunlock was saying? Uh, let's see. I'll give it like a three percent probability, right? So forty <laughs> percent probability. Forty percent yeah. chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I think I think it's hard to look at politics these days and not see blowback um you know we'll see i the what i get concerned about with the market at these levels is compounding becomes tough for new assets if you are a true in my definition sort of cash flow investor so i was looking at some quality companies and it looks like most of them are trading around a two and a half to three percent free cash flow yield current so what do their buybacks really get them if they're buying back their shares at a 33 times cash flow number and then you're getting 3% out of the game? Like, if you're young, how do you compound money? And that's, you know, that's where I I get nervous about Become all this an stuff. Instagram now, influencer. It. Well, that's right. Or a podcaster. A podcaster. There's big money in podcasts. Wow. Yeah, we're going to, didn't we, are we going to split an airhead when we go to Berkshire, right? <laughs> Just carve it up into thirds. How much are they these days? I don't know. Probably more than we're making off this thing. It's like a dollar seventy a day split three ways. <laughs> Before sex. It's, it's okay if we just live below our forty cents a day means. <laughs> we'll be fine over time. I think that was like when I was a kid. It was that was how much you could sponsor a kid in the third world for forty cents a day. Now you can do it on a podcast. That's good. You know, I will say that uh, I was probably the most bearish on our last week, right, with talking about all that debt stuff. And I, I sh probably a part of my errors and omissions should be to give a little bit more context in that in the short to medium term, I'm, I don't like today's prices for hardly any assets. Uh, however, as far as humanity goes, uh, especially even the United States, I'm incredibly bullish over a long period of time. Uh, I couldn't be more excited for what the world can could look like, um, you know, just technology. I think maybe the most interesting thing is the the bottom billion people on Earth. I think their lives are going to get dramatically better. They're going to catch up a lot. Um, and that's, you know, the being able for them to just go onto YouTube and figure out like how to program a, you know, something that they need to fix in their little world um, and not you know, like the ability to spread information, all these things are incredibly powerful. And I'm, I'm, I'm really bullish that uh, the world will be a better place, but it might just, uh, all the asset holders who own the things today may not be the same ones as we go into the future, but the productive capability doesn't disappear. Just the claim checks are probably not correctly arranged. That might be one of the best things that happens for humanity. I'm, I'm sorry for laughing just then. I was thinking about getting them all a podcast so they can, they can get their 40 cents a day. <laughs> Yeah, that would be good. I agree with you. I think that I, I'm in exactly the same boat. I think the future for humanity and 
the, the, the technolo- technological changes that the innovations and the improvements to people's lives are so great and the future is very, very bright, but I think everything's pretty expensive at the moment. So there might be a, um, a reckoning in the short to medium term, but the long term is, is much, much better than it is today. Yeah, and it's that to me. It's that quote of the of Benjamin Graham's that uh, it's it's bear markets when stocks return to their rightful owners. I'm ready for that. <laughs> so why don't we kick off uh, the topics, um, Bill? You want to take it away with restoration hardware tickers RH. Yeah, yeah I think it's um, it's an interesting an interesting setup right now. Um, it's a, I, when I say interesting, I'm not saying like, Oh, go out buy the shares. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it, I had a bias against restoration hardware. My mom's an interior designer and she has always told me from like day one or whatever about quality furniture and how all this other furniture is crap and it's all made in China and this and that. So I sort of inherently had, a negative bias towards restoration hardware from a quality standpoint. So I read that the CEO is talking about we have no competition and we want to be like Louis Vuitton or Hermes or Apple. And I immediately have, you know, you scoffed. Uh, that's right. <clears throat> yeah. And like anybody that's scoffing does these days, I took to Twitter real quick. <laughs> and uh, laid out why I thought that that was silly. You know, it's been it a roller coaster ride of emotions. You and you and has, restoration hardware. That's right. I'm just drinking scotch on Saturday. It's been a roller coaster. Um, so anyway, it's sort of an interesting process that I've gone through on it. And uh, Adam Robinson has said on he said on Tim Ferriss's podcast, and I think Shane Parrish is also there's a lot of opportunity and things that make no sense and things that are blatantly obvious. And that's something that I've tried to sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to learn a little bit from that. And I started to dig into the restoration hardware story and it, it led me to this book, the luxury strategy that bluegrass had recommended a while ago. And the first time I picked it up, I was like, this thing is, you know, whatever. But now that I sort of have a motivation to understand the words that are written on the pages, I'm seeing the book a lot differently. I'm seeing what this what the CEO is trying to do a lot differently. What are they trying to do? What's the story? So, you know, I mean, they're trying to take restoration hardware and become luxury of furniture uh, or, or reposition the brand would be a better way to probably say it. So historically, they have had the middle of the mall or less, I guess, uh, emotional retail engagements would be the best way that I can say it. They have invested a ton of money in these like absolutely sick retail stores. The one in Chicago is incredible. It's a lot like what Starbucks did with the roasteries. And they're trying to do that to reposition the brand. They're now, they're going to put out a tangential it sounds like it's a hotel now i think it might be more of a social club uh where you can live the restoration hardware lifestyle which again i i scoffed at at first but with typical luxury goods you can wear a louis vuitton purse and everybody's like there's a way to socially signal with something like restoration hardware 
you almost need a club in order to, to signal to the world that you deserve to go in or you're sophisticated enough because all your stuff's in your house and it doesn't have logos on it, right? So I think it could take a ton of capital. I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it's super interesting what's going on there. And since it's a financial podcast and then I'll stop talking, you can't talk about this story without looking at how he basically LBO'd himself using convertible notes to retire just a ton of shares. So it's it's just one of those things that I was originally closed-minded to, took a stupid hot take to Twitter, and now I sort of see why both sides are interested. And Berkshire's long. I think it was Ted. I don't know. But it's, it's an interesting peek into what somebody there saw. So it's been a... It's been a good thing to study. On the on the luxury scale, can we just talk about that a little bit? Because I, I used this expression in a podcast a little while ago, and I forget which book it comes from, but it was mass stage, which is like mass prestige. And that's like a BMW. It's an expensive car. It's a really well-made car, but it's not like uh, it's not a Rolls-Royce, right? Rolls-Royce is the pinnacle of luxury. BMW is something that you see pretty regularly on the road. So what is restoration hardware trying to be? Are they... Are they a BMW or are they a Rolls-Royce? Well, I don't think that they can become a Rolls-Royce. Uh, I think that they could probably become closer to BMW. What I What is interesting and, and the question that I think is a huge outstanding question is a lot of the expansion that they've talked about on the last earnings call is going to come from Europe. Whether or not Europe accepts, accepts you know, America's version of luxury furniture remains to be seen because my perception of European luxury is it's very, very historical based and not like if I was European, I would scoff at the notion of American luxury. So to your point, I, I think it's a BMW and I, I don't know if they're going to be able to export the brand. I think that's easier said than done. How many Cadillacs do they sell in Europe? I have no idea. But do you know I, the answer I, to that? I don't know, but I bet it's not a tremendous amount. But, but you gave the example... <laughs> Uh, bill of of Polo of Ralph Lauren, and you said, did you say that was quite successful in Europe? Uh, yeah, I think Ralph. I think Ralph's upper label products scaled well. I think he did a really, really good job at associating himself with sort of the the best the the MAGA of uh, American business, right? I mean, he was nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties images, very um, cultured and. Ralph, I think, is probably the best example of a, a, an American luxury lifestyle brand that's been exported. So can you do it in furniture is sort of the question. Polo Ralph Lauren, it's kind of confected, right? Like he, he's made that up not that long ago, started out selling ties in uh, department stores, and he's built this thing. It's kind of incredible. Like it, it gives you the impression of it being this like old East Coast money which funnily enough they probably are now because it's been yeah. so successful but it's it's all it's it's kind of a brand new invention or it's it's only 50 years old yeah i mean he did a great job steeping himself in that that great american era i saw his car collection in the louvre that's balling <laughs> like it was crazy so I don't know. You know, it's uh, it's going to be interesting. I, it's going to take a lot of capital to do it right, but it'll be interesting to watch. I got to ask this question: Like, what's happened to it when you, if you're, where I don't know where they were. I mean, I've, I'm familiar with restoration hardware. I don't think I've ever bought something, but I've gone in there and looked at the stuff, and I guess it's kind of Ralph Lauren-ish, Polo-ish. But you say that they've gone, they're trying to go upmarket from there to become 
So that, presumably that means you sell it more expensively. So what has happened to the consumer who previously was in that part of the market buying restoration st- hardware stuff? Have they just gone away? I think that they want them to go away. I think that I think in order to execute the strategy, you're not going to be able to be everyone to every, you're not going to be everything to everyone. Actually, I think that's where Ralph got into a lot of trouble with his brand extensions. Once you could get RLX and RL Sport and all that stuff, what it was to be Ralph Lauren got diluted. So I, I actually think that how this could work is margins could go way higher than people think that they're going to go, but your actual transactions come in a little bit, which requires a lower inventory base and a shrunk capital base and a higher return on your invested capital, which you're already seeing some of, but I think that's probably where the CEO is trying to take the brand. And he wins if just Bernard... Is this a long of inequality? Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think it could also be a long of um, citification continuing and jobs sort of continuing to be like the cities being the. Yeah, I guess it's I guess it's inequality, but I'm not sure that I would capture it quite exactly the same way. That was kind of the quote. That was kind of what I was trying to ask. Like, has that just middle part that previously bought that stuff just gone away and now you either got to be you've got to buy flat pack furniture that you put together yourself or you get this sort of ultra luxury end of the market and there's nothing kind of in the middle because there's nobody in the middle yeah i guess like that's where my my aversion to the whole idea came is it's not ultra luxury right but uh it doesn't need to be it, the, it, one, they just need to sort of create the perception of being a club that people have emotional in, engagement with. And that in and of itself can be some sort of mass luxury product. And I did to, not think of that. To me, I think you you hit on my problem is the, the whole signaling mechanism. And, you know, when it's a Tiffany, you know, box that she wants to show off and or when it's a, uh, you know, fancy car or even a clothing label with an R and an L on it to, or a coach bag, all those things are about status signaling. Right. And I don't, I just don't think people have people over often enough to justify the price tag. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe if you filled your house up with restoration hardware, you would. Yeah. You're not the customer, dude. Get out of (laughs) here. Fair enough. No, I think you're right. So that's why I think if, if you Google, these new showrooms that they have. I mean, the Chicago store is incredible. Um, but I think that they're going to need to have other social clubs around cities where you can signal that, right? Where you can say, oh, almost like Soho House, if you guys are familiar with that. It, I've been to a couple Soho Houses, not because I deserve to be, they would hate me, but because I have a couple artist friends. I feel cooler when I'm there. And it's really stupid. But it's, what is it for folks who don't know? It's like a create. You, you go in LA. It's like a if you're a director or an actor or something like that, you go there, right? Yeah, they just hate finance and lawyers. I think I don't know. Oh, My, there's no way I'm getting in. No, you, we we are. They would shun us. What about podcasters? Oh, dude, we're creative types now. There we go. <laughs> All right, I'm applying tomorrow. And so, I make a dollar. I make one third of a dollar forty a day. <laughs> And so you, the, these guys win if uh, Bernard or not decides that he wants to buy them because they've reached that level of ultra luxury that he's after. Yeah, so 
this brings me to another conversation that we had when I was commenting about LVMH and the Tiffany transaction. And you asked, or you had commented that Bernard wants to elevate the brand. And I didn't fully understand how he could do that. Maybe there is something intrinsic in LVMH that understands how to execute luxury that Tiffany has lost. I mean, maybe that's the synergy. I don't know. Let me, let yeah. me give you a counterexample. So, uh, J. Crew. So I used to love J. Crew, and I bought a lot of J. Crew, like not not recently, and not in the last decade, probably. And now I go in there, and I just think it's expensive, and I can probably get something comparable somewhere else. So I think they tried the same thing, right? They used to have bits that you could buy, pieces you could buy alongside expensive stuff, and now it's just all expensive stuff. And I don't think it's worked very well for them. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not familiar, but I do have a similar perception of the brand uh, that you do. And I think if you look historically at brands trying to go upstream, it's not an easy endeavor. So we'll see. Hey, Bill, can you explain a little bit the the convertible debt? And we were kind of joking that it's sort of like the ultimate like play for today's uh, you know environment. Yeah, I can I can try to. I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but uh, basically what they did was when the shorts were coming after them, uh, in in with the knives out. Let's see what what dates. Twenty uh, twenty they issued some. Twenty twenty or no, this is when they expire. So I guess that they issued them around twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, something like that. There's zero percent interest convertible notes that. I'm pretty sure they can be stock or cash settled. I think that one was just cash settled, but I haven't been able to really dig into the terms yet. Um, but what they then did was they entered into a hedging transaction where they bought calls at the conversion price and then sold calls a lot higher. So basically, they just moved the conversion price of the stock up. So they, they took in... I don't know quite how much uh, in debt, but it was a lot. I mean, I think they've retired like 60% of their shares over the last three years. So they took in money today, bearing 0% interest with the promise of settling in stock or cash in the future. And then they entered a hedging transaction to push the price up. You know, today you're probably going to look at dilution. But if you were a shareholder from back then, the dilution's a wash. Like, who cares? Yeah, well, well it's not a wash. You're way ahead. I shouldn't say it that way. I found it amazing. So you're at your zero percent interest rates. All right, that's already kind of a anomaly in the world. And then these warrants. I think the strike was at like 125 percent or 120 percent of that day's price. So you basically were just showing like everyone could draw a straight line of what the stock had been doing and just had it keep going and be like, oh, I'm going to be in the money for these. This is great, right? It's like the ultimate momentum like sales job. Uh, I just found it to be fascinating. Either the guy's either like a, a genius or he's going to like totally torpedo it and it'll turn into a massive zero. Yeah, it's smart financial engineering, isn't it? It's a clever structure anyway for raising money. Yeah, it was super smart. And I, I think that the implied interest that the company ends up paying is two and a half percent, right? If you just take the fees on the notes and then the note holder, you're probably thinking, well, if this goes well, I get the equity, or if it goes bad, at least I get, I take Zero. over restoration hardware, right? I mean, you have a, a claim on the company, 
the bankers are thinking that they're going to get fees. It's a it's an interesting transaction. What's your topic, Jake? Uh, today, talking about uh, Dan Rasmussen's recent, uh, I guess you would say, email or or uh, article about the way the world should work. And what's really interesting about it is that, you know, we, we kind of all understand this idea of like, okay, you have government bonds, they set a certain kind of floor, the risk-free rate. Above that is some corporate spread. And then above that is some equity risk premium. So as we're theoretically moving up the risk, we should be compensated more. Um, so he looked at uh, the data between the interest rates and the equity risk premium and then eventual 10-year returns from there and found no correlations at all as far as the interest rates starting. So basically, uh, the the equity risk premium didn't didn't really correlate that much with the 10-year return. It really was more with the starting price. Um, so we end up with his the real takeaway that everyone needs to know, the, the punchline was that paying high prices for stocks simply because interest rates are low is not sound logic. Now, I know we've all heard our favorite, uh, you know, rich uncle tell us that if if stocks stay low or if interest rates stay low for longer, equities are on sale right now, right? What do you guys think about that? Like those two things are diametrically opposed at this point. The the what the um the thing that Dan is talking about, I think that that's been it's been that's known as the equity as the Fed model, right? That equity risk premium where you look at the yield on the equities over the yield on, say, the 10-year. And when that's in positive territory, that means stocks are undervalued and you can buy. And there have been various people who... That is a pervasive myth. People think that that is the case. And they've been... I've seen, you know, for a decade, I, I think I remember writing about this on Greenback. So that's how long ago it is that... And this is in... Two, this might be like 2009. So... Uh, and I think it was Hussman at the time who said there's no relationship. Or if you include the interest rate into the, um, the, the, the Fed model, that equity risk premium, all you do is you destroy the informational value of what you're looking at. The, the thing that is the driver of returns is purely the yield, which is the inver inver inversion of the multiple. So the lower the yield the higher the multiple and vice versa, and the better the returns you get from lower multiples and higher yields. And what interest rates are is uh, irrelevant. Yeah, so I actually followed up with Dan and asked him, you know, I, I, I quoted the Buffett quote about, you know, low rates um, and stocks are cheap. And, and he said that uh, this low relative to what and cheap relative to what? Uh, <laughs> which I thought was funny because he he referenced that that uh, both in the EU and Japan they have they have lower rates and lower valuations so they should right. be even more of an obvious buy than the US if you're using that logic um, so you know right now he he did another research uh, paper a while back that he talked about where he had four variables that explained a lot of the variance uh, in EV to sales. And it was it was the, the net interest margin, dividends as a percentage of revenue, two-year forward revenue growth rate, and then return on assets. So 
this came up because I asked him, well, you know, not all equities created equally. Some, you know, maybe the U.S. equity is is better quality than than these other places, right? Better return on assets, better capital allocation. Well, those four variables that he put together, uh, he controlled for the differences between the U.S. and the and the other markets using these four variables that explained uh, a decent amount of of the variance and. He found that even with that, uh, the U.S. is still trading at a 30% premium uh, relative to the rest of the world. So I don't know if I, I would probably say his takeaway would be to get a little bit more international exposure. If you're listening in the U.S., maybe don't suffer home country bias too hard. Um, and also that actually that the U.S. Uh, corporate debt is reasonably attractively priced compared to the rest of the world's corporate debt, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, giving our our talk last week about how so much of it is, you know, poorly is probably overrated and there's huge amounts of it and it's kind of scary. So is that because the rest of the world has negative interest rates? Or yeah, a lot of the world the big, has negative interest rates. Right. The the spread between the government bonds and the corporate bonds in the rest of the world is not as attractive as the U.S. version. I think that's one of those. Uh, I think it's a. I think it's super interesting. Once again, data destroys a pervasive narrative, but that's one of those things. It just won't die. That Fed model is, it's called the Fed model. I think the Federal Reserve has at least two Fed governors ago. It was a, it was something, a Fed, uh, Fed chairman ago. It was, that was something that people were talking about quite regularly about how attractive equities were. As it turns out, I think they were probably right. Like equities have worked really well, but you know, the, the data just seems to be, uh, the the data is decisive. I think that's so, interesting because I w- I would think that equity benefits from low rates as as long as it can continue to recap its balance sheet and buy in the shares, right? Because your share shrinkage, <laughs> if you're if uh, what this come on, this is two thousand and what nineteen. This is how we talk these days. I know. Jeez. Um, it's so, all financialization of, of of the economy. <laughs> well, but that that should be in in my my feeling is that's how the it, the math should work. But it I may uh, I may not be correct. The data may prove me wrong. I agree with you that the story is so compelling. I mean, how could it be any other way? If you've 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 only got a limited number of options to invest, you can go and get virtually nothing you know it must be you must be investing in uh treasuries and so on at your your real your your real return must be negative at this point right even if you're nominal your your nominal is minimal or nothing your real return must be negative therefore you must be able to you you must look to get a real return somewhere and really you can get it in looking back over the last 10 years you have been able to get it pretty uh decisively in equity it just, it, that, like that, how can that story be wrong? And yet the data always seems to, to show that it's not. I, I don't fully understand the, why there's a disconnect because I find the, the narrative pretty compelling too. Well, what about this? Is it is it a reversion to the mean of the interest rate? So you, what ends up happening is everyone believes the Fed model. They bid up the stocks to stupid levels and then you know returns going forward from there are then crunched. And then if you have any return to normalize interest rates, which you know, we have had over lots of cycles, like we just happen to not have had it recently. Uh, But maybe the thesis, if it's lower for longer, forever, 
which I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about, but if that is the, your viewpoint of the world, then maybe, maybe the Fed model does hold some truth for you. So the equity, equity has the longest duration and then anything else is a shorter duration bet than that. So other than Argentinian century bonds. <laughs> Well, they've experienced a little bit of mean reversion, I think, recently, haven't they? Yeah. Well, I was just doing a little bit of math, right? And like, I, I had said some quality companies that I was looking at are trading, you know, call it a two and a half percent free cash flow yield. Cha-ching. Yeah. So if you look at that as a spread, <laughs> well, what if it goes to two? Think about the price appreciation. Um, yeah. If uh, if you think about it as a spread over rates and rates go up. I mean, if if that goes to a four percent free cash flow yield, you're you're looking at a thirty-eight and a half percent drawdown. Earnings need to grow a lot in order to offset that drawdown. Now, over time, they could, but as an investor, you got to be willing to take that punch and remain convinced that you're still right on the business. And I have this general operating thesis that says that stock price drives narratives. So. Uh, it'd be interested to see who actually has the conviction. You're caught between the Scylla and the Charybdis there, right? That's There's a great article. I think it might have been or a great note by James Montier. It was his first one, um, well, I think, when he got to GMO, or one of the first ones he wrote when he got to GMO, talking about investing in the age of financial repression. And he said, you've only got two choices. Either you believe that interest rates are... And, and when we go into these very low interest rate environments, they tend to last for decades, 20, 30 years. So what's if, that? Where's the analog for that? Like, what do you? What's what's the reference class? I I can't remember specifically, but I think he might have been able to find the U.S. through uh, very like maybe through the fifties was was very low interest rates through to like until late you know so fifties were the, the low and then early eighties was the high and then we're like back a low to, of like five percent. No, I think it was. I think <laughs> they were. I think that because. After World War Two, the U.S. had a gigantic amount, like comparable amount of debt, having fought a world war, as we do now, having not fought a world war. So you, you're you you much weaker now than you were then for for no good reason. But he says that the it takes such a long period of time. You have to kind of make this decision: either you believe that it will stay very low for a long period of time and invest accordingly, which means equities are cheap, or you think that you are going to see some mean reversion in the not too distant future, in which case equities are expensive. Flip a coin. I've got no idea. Well, that's. I was talking yeah. to somebody yesterday. I own a little bit of Costco as like a growth bond replacement. I don't like owning that stock here. <laughs> it makes me terrified. That's why it's tiny, right? But um, part of the reason I have the allocation to it is I don't know where the heck rates are going and. You know, if they don't go up for a while, it should perform fairly well for me. Uh, if they do, it's going to suck, and I better have some money that I can dollar cost average down. Maybe that's the answer. You just got to have the portfolio that has both bets in it. I, I guess as long as they're rational. I mean, you don't want to get too carried away with that because then you don't have a view, right? But I, I would rather own Costco equity than some of the bonds out there. So, you know, I, I'm sure there will be a time when I'm you know, crying that you guys will say, remember when you said this? And I'll say, yeah, I do. But I don't know what the answer is. It's a very difficult thing to navigate, in my opinion. So many places where mean reversion is 
this <coughs> so much sand in the gears of it right now. I mean, profit margins abnormally high, interest rates crazy low, um, you know, debt not really mattering, being able to refinance. Like there's none of these things are uh, it's hard to imagine a world where eventually those things don't matter or mean revert. I don't it's just know. like I th- how long is your investment career? I think we've reached a permanently high plateau. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Fisher. So uh should we move on to my uh my topic? Please. Uh one of my when I first started in, in investing, uh when I first started trying to concentrate on it, one of the original documents that I read was this one by Tweedy Brown, What Has Worked in Investing not to be confused with Jim O'Shaughnessy's book. They, theirs came out in 1992. Basically, it was a collection of every bit of price-to-book research, any bit of academic research that had been done. They turned them into charts. And so they, uh, the reason I, I bring that up, they have a semi-annual report came out recently. Um, they're talking about the fact that price-to-book has sort of broken down as a metric, but they went through... And they said that uh, the flow metrics have co- worked quite well. And particularly, they said that the acquirer's multiple type metrics have worked really well. So that was kind of exciting. As far as I know, I know I stole that title, that name from someone else. But as far as I know, I'm the only person who kind of uses that right. Yeah. No, that Did, was a, Tweety Brown read my stuff? Have to have, right? Where else would you come up with that? Like, it's not a common term other than from what I've seen from you. Out of my mouth, yeah. Did you write them and ask them for some recognition over here? No, nah, I'm happy. For, I'm happy for it to be out in the ether. I'm happy for it there to be. There you go. Uh, well, I you know, this, um, do you think that price to book is dead? Yes. No. Good. All right. Let's do this. Okay. Good. So, <laughs> do you, you want to go, go, Bill? Why, why is it broken? Well, or was I, it dead? I think that if you had a metric that Tobin's Q is maybe a good example of something that I don't think is dead. Um, if you could have like a price to Tobin's Q, what's, uh, what's Tobin's Q re- for that, folks who are replacement value, right? What's it's yeah. in a, it's, it's market in value market. over replacement value. Yeah, yeah. Like an accounting value, basically replacement cost. Right. So to me, that makes a ton of sense. Why, but why something like that would not be done or dead. Price to book is harder for a number of reasons. One, a lot of the really good companies have bought in so many shares that their book value is totally fake anyway. Like maybe maybe price to tangible assets I could get behind a little bit more. Um, but just book, I, I think book is so perverted now. And I think it was Jesse Livermore did a pretty good debunking of book and how inflation affects it over time. So I don't know. That That wouldn't be where I would hang my... I'm sure it'll have like a five-year run or something like that because everything that gets this hated eventually bounces back. But it's only I wouldn't invest according to it. I don't believe in it. You know, I chatted to I saw uh, uh, Corey Hofstein over the weekend, and we were talking about price to book because Hofstein said Hofstein had this great thing where he said, you know, it's got whatever it's got eighty years of data. Like, how many years of data do you need to show now that it doesn't work? And you need kind of a long, long run of data where it doesn't work. If you go back through the fam- the French data, which is free, you can see that when f- when that data series first came out from like 26 to 41, I think is the period, it, it price to book, the, the value com- got absolutely smashed to pieces and it looked, funnily enough, a lot like it does now. 
And so there was mm. nobody kind of criticizing it when it was working, right? Everybody was a believer when it was working. So when it stops working, then people come up with the narrative to why it doesn't work anymore. One of the things that I like out of OSAM, they did this more recent study where they looked at, you know, that looking back at that 26 to 41 period, what, what was it about that period that caused book value to not work very well? And what they said at that time was um, that was the invention or the, the popularization of the motor car. And the, the significance of that is that you need to build out an enormous amount of infrastructure. You need roads that can handle cars. You need fuel stations and so on and so on. And he, uh, Chris Meredith, I think, wrote that one. I'm sorry if I get that wrong. But uh, he would say that the modern equivalent of that is the internet. You've built out this sort of infrastructure of the internet um, Whatever that means, really, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I think I guess it's more than the internet; it's the web um, being built out. And so that's that it, through these periods of disruption, it is the um, the businesses that are capitalising on that that go ahead, and you don't see the mean reversion in some of these other companies that are left behind, which is why cheap companies on a price to book value basis seem to have not worked recently. How's that strike you? Yeah, I, I think the argument for accounting decaying from price with like book value as a as a metric, the signal to noise uh, is like in the disconnect between intrinsic value, I think has is probably a fair statement, um, especially in the U.S. for more service based or or IP driven, you know, software companies. However, I look at the rest of the world and. You know, if they're going to be catching up and they're building a lot of stuff uh, similar to the U.S. or even better than we have now, why wouldn't it maybe work somewhere else where maybe they're not doing as much IP and they're actually just, you know, building a building or some other things that where that signal now comes back in and works? Yeah, I could, I could see. I would buy that. The other thing is bringing it back to restoration hardware, right? They, they have a lease-based okay. model. Okay. so. No, so you're not going to capture all the actual capital that that entity needs because it's it it's placed it off the balance sheet on somebody else's. So I I don't know like it's basically just an intangibles company with some inventory now. So I guess in aggregate, the the entity that's holding the assets maybe I, I don't know how all the math would work on it, but it just seems to me that. Some of these really big winners are intangible in our economy, but in foreign economies that are more manufacturing based, I could buy price to book. Well, here's my question: what what drives uh, a company to earn these sort of super normal returns? Is it um, the mere fact that they're they're sort of asset light businesses, or is it because they've kind of defeated competition? Because my my view is that. It doesn't matter. The kind of asset composition of your business shouldn't really matter. It's the only thing that matters is what you can, you know, what your competition allows you to sell your product for. But that that that's uh, that. I think at the moment it sort of all looks like it's asset light compounders that are the only things that are kind of working. Whereas I think it's things that have got, for whatever reason, they've just been able to defeat competition either permanently or just in the short term. I'm not as optimistic either on some of the actual returns of these companies. You know, I think about like, I think they've actually accrued liabilities that aren't readily seen. Um, so for instance, if you're Facebook and you allow everyone to publish everything and you get yourself into hot water, 
you know, there's potential legal liabilities. There's potential government, uh, you know, intrusion. There's like, and you see, like, I think their profitability has come down now that they have to hire a bunch of fact checkers to sit and look at all the things that everyone's publishing. Like, whereas you didn't have to do that when it was all quick and dirty. Uh, you know, no one, while, while society adjusts to these new technologies, I think some of the expenses start to come back in and push down these, even for the winner take all situations. I'm not as optimistic that it's just going to be printing money all day for these guys. Yeah, I, th I think uh, I think some of that's right. And then I, I also, Toby, to your point, I think industry structures matter a lot and supply constricted industries for whatever reason. Um, you know, I Bruce Greenwald would say historically, look at industries that don't trade share often. Uh, you look at the outsized returns in beer and cigarettes historically. I think if you can combine consolidation and not a lot of share change, you can get some pretty outsized economic returns relative to what a book should tell you that it would uh, generate. So I, I, I really, I don't know. So it's, is the, Sorry, the thing that I've been thinking a little bit, and this may be stupid because now we're 10 years away from the financial crisis, but one thing that like clicked for me because I'm real, I'm a quick thinker, it only took nine years, is, you know, coming out of the financial crisis, these companies that had access to capital, of course, they were able to, to squash the competition for a while. So how many people are looking at these 10 years saying this is the future? And now we're sort of getting to the point where companies are getting recapped and you're getting real competitors and sort of the competitive uh, landscape is able to flourish again rather than just like the scorched earth earth that the uh, that the financial crisis had left for a while I'm, I'm not sure but it'll be something to watch is it a is it a function of accounting not keeping up with book value and what would you change to make book value better I don't know I've thought about this a lot actually and I if it every solution that I've come up with violates the conservatism uh, kind of tenant of of good accounting, so I'm not sure what you would change. I mean, I'm, what do you guys? What do all the uh, what are the the other two listeners that are that are out there? What do they think? <laughs> well, since I'm one of them, I'll I'll pitch in. Okay. I mean, I almost I almost always capitalize advertising expenses if I'm looking at a business, um, and I think that there's got to be some level of R and D that you have to capitalize in some of these businesses too. The thing that gets really tough in these intangible businesses is, you know, everybody says this land and expand stuff, right? Well, let's say I have a retail concept like Five Below that has really good economics on the units. They get a payback within a year. If I just threw out 5,000 of those all over the, the U.S. and then shut them down as they didn't work, people would say that's an insane strategy. But if I just hire a super huge sales force and pay them a ton and hope to land and expand, it's forgiven these days. Um, I'm sure there are reasons for that that I'm not thinking of, but it's something that I think of. It's a tangent. I'm sorry, but I get ranty sometimes. You know, one thing I've thought about with the, you know, as we've we have older infrastructure now compared to a lot of the rest of the world because we just built it and we're using it. Uh, so. You know, you think about at the most simplest version of an old building that's on the balance sheet that's been amortized or depreciated down to zero, like that book value doesn't reflect that anymore. So 
you know, like there's a lot of places where that can happen, where we write down things and then, but really there's still economic value there, but price to book wouldn't be capturing that as well, which is sort of going back to my argument about maybe internationally, it still makes some sense because if you're building all that infrastructure, it's probably carried on the books at closer to, at least it hasn't decayed like it has here if it's been sitting on the books for 50 years. I think this is a good opportunity to segue to the question of the week, which comes in from Nico in South Africa. His question was about how you treat leases. Do you capitalize leases or or, or what do you do? I like that our other listeners in South Africa. <laughs> well, I guess we have three. We've got one in Guantanamo also. So <laughs> we're going global. Um yeah, I think you have to you have to make some adjustment for leases. Now they're on the balance sheet, but I think you have to at least think about whether or not the management team is being reasonable with it. Historically, at least as it came to retail, you would capitalize them. You'd, you'd take uh, rent times eight would be sort of the shortcut to get to what a trued up version of the liability would be. So if you're looking at leverage, you do. Why that multiple? You know, I don't know 100%. My best guess is that you're capitalizing um, your leases at, a, at what, a 12.5% cost of capital. Feels a little low or high to me from a cost of capital standpoint, but I, that's the only math that I could think of. Some listener, please feel free to tell me I'm an idiot on that because I have been thinking about that. Generally, I think that it should probably be a higher multiple given the interest rate environment that you're capitalizing the rent at, but I could be wrong do you guys have any sense of how much latitude management has on the reporting of these assets and liabilities now that that it's been forced to come onto the books i don't know but i just assume that they've got enormous latitude and they're gaming it as hard as they possibly can at the end of every quarter (laughs) i assume the exact same thing and i i think that it creates it does create this opportunity to renegotiate which will you know renegotiate your rent a little bit or find some creative way of pushing some of the uh the costs that are captured on the balance sheet back onto the uh the lessor like you find someone who's a private guy who doesn't really he doesn't have to file so he doesn't care what the accounting treatment of it is he just cares about sort of maximizing his return on it so he'll he'll do something that doesn't make a lot of uh financial sense for you but makes a whole for or for the for the filer but does does for him i think it's becoming increasingly important that you do you, you go through the financial statements and figure out what the economic reality is that yeah, would be I, my I, recommendation too is that all these things I, I try to i'm almost always hesitant to get any, give any kind of prescription because really it's for me it's like okay i have to approach this as a what would a business owner look at and want to know and and then work backwards from there because I'm not sure that the accounting now it's always it, it may be even getting further away from from being helpful well ideally what you'd want to know is how long are all the lease tenures and what's your weighted average cost of capital and then you DCF it and you know you got to get your present value number but you only get five years of leases in a 10k right so like I mean it's all just sort of guesswork uh, so I, I somehow they got to rent times eight and that was convention so i mean that just cr- doesn't that like that creates an opportunity if you cost if you weighted average cost of capital is not 12 and a half percent if it's lower than that then you're incentivized to do something there i have to think about what it is but you anytime there's a little arbitrage anytime you know that everybody's doing one thing 
you can do something else and make you make your company look a lot more attractive than it is. Yeah, I'm I'm certain that times eight is wrong. I'm just also certain that if you're wrong while you're doing it, you're wrong with everyone else. I think to, I so, think I've heard that before. Eight, I think eight is the rule of thumb. It is the rule of thumb. I, I'm not a hundred percent about the math behind why. I wonder if there's any kind of uh, like what is the average lease period? Is it five to ten years? I would have does said put, ten does years. That, does that yeah. put you at eight then? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but you're not going to capitalize them all at today's dollars. I I would need to do a lot of math that I am not going to do right now. <laughs> I, I'll tell you one thing that I found sort of interesting about that paper that you had referenced, Toby. You know, they they had a write up on Fox, uh, and then I looked through the four funds, and it's a 0.9 percent position. Um, I would argue that's what doesn't work in investing. Doing all that work and then putting on a small position. In one fund. I think they're right. Take a bet. But sometimes it, maybe it's maybe it's just uh, they only it's a, it's a new position. They're just scaling in. I don't know. Possible. I'm just saying. Swing. So you you Swing what's you the bump. since you've raised it? What's the fox? What's the fox? What's their idea? Oh, it's uh, in in traditional media, linear TV. Right now, the the fear is that the bundle is unraveling. I think that there is a reasonable case to be made that the bundle will eventually hit some sort of sort of uh, floor-ish. I mean, it'll, it'll fade for a while, um, but as single-family homes become a greater percentage of total subscribers, you would think that they churn less because they tend to have at least somebody in the house that wants to watch sports and say that person's a kid. Well, sometimes their parents want to watch news and whatever you think of uh, their political bias, Fox has a great product for a fan base. So the probability that they're going to be able to keep their economics or increase their economics as a percentage of the bundle or that the bundle becomes more expensive as sort of rabid users are the remaining subs, I think is at a minimum a reasonable conclusion. So uh, it's an interesting entity. It's a play on live news and a secondary play on sports, which is where all the value is accruing. It's an interesting transitional period because they are going to have to start like anybody else, like ESPN or any of the other companies that were probably getting a bit of a premium by virtue of the fact that they were in the bundle. They're now going to have to compete on their own terms. They're probably going to have to create their own tile, which means they're going head to head with Netflix and everybody else. You got to look at what differentiates you. Like they've all got, they've got long, long. They've got lots of years of experience of creating shows and running shows. I don't see why that wouldn't be helpful in this environment. That'd be a good thing in this environment. Well, yeah, and like especially Fox. I mean, they get the way that bundle economics work. I mean, you cross subsidize a lot. So if they had to go direct, direct to consumer, I don't know what the economics of that business look like. So. The bet I do think is somewhat the bundle stays together in some form. But that platform, I mean, Bill O'Reilly left, they didn't have a hiccup. Megan Kelly left, they didn't have a hiccup. Glenn Beck left, they didn't have a hiccup. I mean, it's crazy how good they are at replacing the stars and not 
having the ratings fall. I, I would not have guessed that. I bet they could lose Hannity and they'd just replace him tomorrow. Did they launch podcasts, those three? Have they all gone and got their own podcast? No, no. They, they make real money, Toby. <laughs> That's kind of like if you go and maybe they go and set up a podcast, they get a million followers immediately and then you can monetize that and you maybe you can replace your income with that. Glenn Beck has. He's got his own uh, sort of direct-to-consumer. I don't know if it's called Beck Nation or whatever, but he's got a, a thing. Um, I don't think it's nearly as successful as he was on Fox. Well, I think that's probably coming up on time. Uh, how do we normally close this thing off? We'll, we'll be Wait, around waving. next week. <laughs> See yeah, you then. That's right. Yeah, indeed. Send us your questions. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, that's right. And any other comments, places where we screwed up, we'll try to address those on the, the next, the arrows and omissions section for next week. And, uh, Consider this more of a dialogue that, that people drop into and then keep it going after. Send the criticism to Jake, send the errors and omissions to Bill, and send all of your compliments to me. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Move with the Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13. Sing.